everybody. Welcome back to Sports Talk. Doug Miles, Don Henderson with you on another busy weekend of sports. We come to you live on a Monday night. I'm here in Sarasota, Don, up in the New Jersey area. And, uh, uh, John, a very busy weekend once again. We're going to talk about uh, a lot of things tonight, but uh, we should get right to our guest, and I'm going to let you do the introduction. Well, we're very happy to have Bob Wolf join us. Bob's joined us a couple of times previously over the years, and very happy to have him again. And, and Bob, first of all, welcome again to the show. And secondly, right at the top, I know that you've uh, donated a lot of your personal interviews and so forth, and maybe you just chat about that before we talk about some of the present-day events that are going on. Well, it's a delight to be with you guys again. And uh, as for the interviews I donated, they went to the Library of Congress. They used all of my old tapes and discs and so forth. The amazing thing is that, that I have saved them all during the years. This is back over... I'd say about 60 or 70 years, I never threw them away. So we get to the point where my wife said, look, something has to go now, either you <laughs> or the tapes. <laughs> so the tapes went. Doug? Yeah, I heard you do an interview uh, about a month or so ago, Bob, on uh, WFAN on Mike Francesa's show, and you got to play some of those. Great clips. Uh, you had a, a clip of an interview you did with uh, with Jackie Robinson. I guess you had a, a small clip with uh, Babe Ruth and uh, also one with Mickey Mantle. So, some great vintage uh, audio you had. Well, the, the great thing is that in those days, this is the we're going back before TV and in the early radio days, nobody saved these things for some reason. In fact, they not only discarded them, but in some cases they used the same tapes and redid them with, with other new shows. And the the networks out these great shows, they lost them as well. But I saved them for a rather unusual reason, and that is that because there were no computers to check information on, I used the tapes and my notes that went along with them as my study pieces when I got some new events to do. So it became the dog show or the horse show or the rangers or the Knicks or college football or pro football or the baseball games and so forth. I go back and listen to my tapes to get re-familiar with all the people I did, and that was my preparation. So they worked out for me beautifully. Well, Bob, you were a lot smarter than I was. We just finished uh, doing a show last week, and I used my tape with Joe DiMaggio. I had a 13-minute interview with Joe DiMaggio. We're I was doing the Philly games at the time, and it was a rain delay in the press box, and I asked Joe and Eddie Liebertor, who was a great scout for the Dodgers, if he'd come in the, in the radio booth and do a little interview with us while the rain delay was going on, and it lasted 13 minutes. I was sort of proud of that, and, and, uh, but I, I wasn't as smart as you. I didn't save all the ones I did. Well, that's great. <laughs> Let me ask you. I interviewed Joe DiMaggio, and... It was an amazing thing that, that Joe DiMaggio did because he was he was rather shy, as you may have noted. Right. He wasn't uh, really very verbose as a speaker, and yet the oddity was that as time went on, he got so used to doing interviews and so familiar with it that he became the spokesman for a coffee, as you know, and all of a sudden he became very good at speaking on the air. And And one time I asked him, I said, Joe... What was this transformation that all of a sudden you became a TV personality? He said, well, Bob, I worked at playing baseball and I worked at speaking, so I, I actually went out and, and sort of learned how to speak in public 
and it really has helped me in these later years. No question about it. And of course, he was a spokesman for so many years for Mr. Boston and uh, the coffee company, and also the bank there. What was it? The Bowery Bank, I think. Wasn't it? Bowery Bank. Yeah, Bowery Bank. No, but he made himself a speaker. It, it's odd people can do that. For example, in New York, Walt Frazier, uh, Clyde Frazier, as he's known, every time he went on a road trip with the Knicks, because I was did the road games and the home games. Walt would bring along all these books on 50 ways to word power, 10 ways to increase your vocabulary, and so forth. And he made uh, the vocabulary sort of a gimmick on the air. He used to rhyme words, but he actually now has become one of the most literate of all the broadcasters because he just spent so many hours working at it. Doug, you talk about you talk about the tapes that you had, Bob. That did, uh, as you went along, I know you started out as you know a way to kind of you know, refresh your memory and all that, do research. But uh, as you went along with all these great people that you interviewed over the years, did you ever have in your mind, well, this is a great historical thing that I can have and, and maybe pass along to, uh, you know, future generations? I mean, it really is history when you have these tapes. Well, the big thing I found out is that voices by themselves, for some strange reason, don't mean that much to the public. For example, Honus Wagner baseball card goes for a couple of millions Dirt from Yankee Stadium is sold by my friend Mr. Steiner for a fortune with a picture on. All of a sudden, suit seats from old ballparks are sold, <clears throat> but there's been no no real use or financial claim for for hearing old tapes. But if they have something unusual to say, all of a sudden that becomes news because people haven't heard that before. So in order to enhance the discs for the Library of Congress, I've been digging up unusual things they had to say that people didn't know about, which changed their concept of what they're like as human beings. And I think that's been the the key that they've had such a, so many people writing about them is because not just the voice, but, but the thoughts that they had. For example, Ty Cobb uh, sought me out one day and he said, Bob, everybody thinks of me as being a a mean old guy, and they've written that way and so forth. But nobody's ever asked me whether I suffered from all the spike wounds that I got when I slid into bases. So let's do an interview about what happened to me rather than what I did to these other people. And that became sort of interesting. It was a different point of view. Exactly. And, Bob, let me ask you this. I, two questions, actually. One, did you see 42 yet? And number two... Uh, you, of course, obviously uh, fortunate enough to interview Jackie Robinson. And uh, your, some of your thoughts about Jackie and some of your thoughts about 42. I haven't had the good fortune of seeing 42 as yet. I've been just too busy to see any movies in the past couple of months. I'm anxious to see it. But I do know that Jackie Robinson seemed more calm about the racial tensions than any other athlete that I've spoken to. When I spoke to him, and this was right after that first year that he played in the big leagues, I have a tape of him, and here's what he said. In essence, I'm rephrasing it. He said, he said, Bob, when I was playing ball at UCLA, I was always razzed when we played against USA. They taunted me. They berated me. They, they needled me. But he said, I took that just as part of the game. And he said, we played him quite a, a bit, and I got to admire some of the ball players and how well they did. I didn't hesitate to compliment them on their play, 
And pretty soon when they got to see me play, they gave me some praise as well. And then as the time went on, we became pretty good friends. So he said the taunting stopped is just uh, friends speaking. And I found out in my own mind that when people get to know each other, that's all it takes to become good people respecting each other instead of uh, being enemies of any sort. And he said that's that's what the world has to have. you got to know know your fellow man better, and that will take care of a lot of the problems that now exist. I like talking with the great sportscaster Bob Wolf, who uh, people up in New York uh, still see on uh, the News 12 channel out in uh, Long Island. Of course, uh, uh, great broadcaster of the Knicks and the Rangers and the baseball game of the week, football. And Don, uh, Bob, the last time we talked a lot about the Don Larson perfect game and the, and the Giants and Colts broadcast. Any of those tapes uh, and some of the others uh, in the Library of Congress as well, in addition to the interviews? Well, I was very fortunate. People used to ask me when I started out, can you do the sport? For example, can you do hockey? Oh, of course, I love hockey. Well, how about the dog show? Yeah, dogs, great. How about the horse show? Fine. Gymnastics? Yes. How about uh, women's sports? Of course. Whatever they said, I figured out if I can learn one sport, I can learn another sport. So I took on all assignments. And and for a while, I was averaging 250 play-by-plays a year, which means when I flew back and forth, there was little time to, to do more than just learn each sport or learn the players. Get on a plane, go to a hotel, do it, go to the arena, come back, and then continue for more. But it's very possible to do. All you have to do is really do a lot of study, watch a lot of tapes, go to a lot of practices, and become just part of the the scene, because each sport demands that you speak the lexicon of their sport. For example, when I did a dog show, it's important that you say it's the best in show and not the best of show, or also the the people who know that sport will think that you're a phony. But uh, it's possible. I just took them all on, and I think I have a pretty good record for versatility in that regard. Oh, I have no question about that. And the one thing, uh, just to sort of refresh what you're saying, when you see uh, 42, and I was a, a great Dodger fan when the Dodgers were, were of course, in Brooklyn. And uh, the one thing that struck me, uh, you're going to really admire the work that Harrison Ford does as the general manager, uh, uh, Ricky, because he, he, he does one of the great um, – if he doesn't get some type of uh, at least nomination for uh, the co-starring role he had in that movie, I'll be very surprised. One of the better movies I think he's ever made in – the one disappointing, as well as it was for the Branch Rickey playing, the, the thing that disappointed me more was the fact that when they utilized players, and they really only had Robinson and Pee Wee Reese uh, to any degree, but they went down the lineup and they named Duke Snyder and so forth. But then when, when they showed uh, one of the actual batters, they showed Gene Hermansky, who was really a, a sort of a, not a backup player, but not what you would call a front-line player for the Dodgers, and they had him hitting right-handed. <laughs> and I said, how can you make a movie and you don't even get the details right about who Gene Urbanski was? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a shame that so many movies have done things like that, and they say blithely, well, you know, it's, it's just a movie. Yeah, but you got to show the truth. Well, uh, along with movies, you'll often find these completely confidential conversations between two people in an office 
where they're having a, a tete-a-tete and they're confiding all sorts of security secrets back and forth in the film. And you say, wait a minute, how do they know exactly what was said in a secret <laughs> conversation with the doors closed, nobody listening in, and now you're duplicating all the words that were said? It's pure bunkum. Uh, some screenwriter put it that together in his imagination, right. that's all. Right. Well, I, I, I always admire Branch Rickey. I thought he was one of the greatest. Of, uh, of all the baseball general managers, I always thought he was he was maybe the greatest of all time. And I, I just thought Harrison Ford did such a terrific job, not only um, masking his, his dialogue, but uh, the way he carried himself and so forth. I never had the chance to really interview or talk to Branch Rickey I saw him many times, but never really interviewed him. How about you? Did you get a chance to talk to him? No, I never never did meet the man, no. Don, I, was say about the, I was going to say about the movie, too, Don and Bob. Uh, you and I talked about this, Don. Uh, the one thing they did not portray well, and I think, Bob, uh, when you see the movie, you'll probably be a little bit <laughs> disappointed, too, the way they portrayed uh, Red Barber, uh, some of the scenes of him broadcasting the Dodgers. Uh, uh, not, not very close. I know you knew Red probably pretty well, Bob. Uh, he had a distinctive style, and... Well, they didn't quite get that either. Yeah, how, how did how did they uh, portray him? Uh, well, the actor is a guy. TV, Don, maybe you can explain it better than I can. He's, he's an, an actor you've seen a lot, but not a big name. But uh, he just was not very good. No, he, he he just didn't have any real feel for what Red Barber was all about. And and uh, uh, the only uh, just trying to think back now, because it's been a few weeks or a month since I saw the movie. But he did use uh, the one phrase that that uh, Red Barber used all the time. What was it, Doug? Uh, in the catbirds, he used that a bunch of times. Yeah, in the, in the yeah. Movie. But he used his cliches, and all you heard were the, basically the cliches. And then he, they showed him applauding in the press box, which uh, one day he did something which Red never would do. <laughs> well, Jackie Robinson indirectly had a, a great deal to do with the the way that I call a ball game. He, he had called the game in the World Series in which uh, Floyd Bevins was pitching a, a no-hit, no-run game against against Brooklyn. Bevins Cookie with, with the Yankees. That's right, and Cookie Lavagetto, just as you said. All of a sudden, as he said, well, it's a no-hitter, no runs, no this. And he kept doing this all during the game until Cookie Lavagetto, who was a good friend of mine when he was with Washington, he managed down there. When Cookie Lavagetto got up and got a base hit to right field, which drove in not just the tying run, but the winning run, and there disappeared the, the no-hit, no-run game, and the whole ball game went, went away. But uh, he, Red Barber insisted on doing that. He said, I'm just being an honest broadcaster. But I resolved, if ever I got a chance to do a ball game, that I was going to do the same. I was going to let people know and I was doing it coast-to-coast coast and around the world on armed forces, it's going to let them know exactly that there were no hits and no runs, but I wasn't going to use those words until it actually happened. I figured two things. One, going along with baseball tradition, but two, more important, I don't want a ton of letters coming in and phone calls and people writing to the sponsor, Gillette, saying, how can Bob do that, keep this guy off the air and so forth? How can... <laughs> How can you ruin it? So I, I just used every synonym. So far, all the only hits so far have been by the Yankees. The only men on base have been by New York. Uh, 
here 24 up, 24 down, the, the Dodgers, on and on. I, I, I must have said it forwards and backwards a hundred times, so everybody knew there was a no-hitter, but I didn't use the word till the end. I said, it's a no-hitter, a perfect game for Don Larson. Yogi Bear runs out, leaps on Larson's arms, etc., and uh, nobody across the world or around the country ever wrote a letter saying that, how come Bob spoiled it? <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty well, good. But it was I, I, Red Barber put me on the, the right path for that. You know, he he said I'm being honest, and he was being honest. But you, he can be honest and and still not use words which irritate. Well, when you look at that Bob. game, uh, Bob and, and Don, I mean, you were in the booth. Red Barber was in the stadium that day. Vince Scully was doing the game on TV along with Mel Allen. And what what a Hall of Fame of announcers just uh, in the stadium that day. Well. I was very fortunate. Times have changed the way they selected the announcers. In the early days of baseball, they selected one announcer from each of the winning teams, one from the American League, one from the National League. And the other two announcers, one was selected by the TV network and one by the radio network that had the games. But basically, it was one way that they made a concession. They said, Okay, tell you what, one announcer from each team, run. But instead of one from each TV or one radio network, one guy who is a broadcaster either on TV or radio and one guy that Gillette picks as the Gillette announcer. And in 1956, that same year of the Larson no-hitter, I happened to be, I was in Washington doing the Senators, and Gillette selected me to be their Gillette announcer because they wanted a guy with a Washington background, so I selected him. And they said they enjoyed my work from now on. I was on their team. And as a consequence of getting that World Series game, that All-Star game, I became the other announcers selected to be on the World Series. I did the Larson game. In the game prior to that, Jackie Robinson got his last major league hit, <coughs> which won the game. One nothing in the tenth inning, and from that on, I became a Gillette regular, doing the Rose Bowl and the Sugar Bowl for them, and Game of the Week and everything else. So that was a great break for me. Bobby Stan was Washington for just a second. Uh, how about Ted Williams? Uh, not only is a great player, obviously, but uh, he, he took the managerial reins there for a bit. So you must have uh, been pretty close to him at that time. Well, I was close to Ted for many, many years. I did, in addition to the, the ball games in Washington, I did all of the pregame radio shows and the postgame radio shows that were taped and the pre- and postgame television shows. So I had interviews coming out of my year. I was doing every day. I was doing all, all the pre- and the postgame shows for TV and radio plus the play-by-play. And, of course, I had to get Ted Williams on every time he came in to Washington. So we, we became pretty good friends because I asked him so many questions. But the big thing I had to know about Ted Williams was that he's exceedingly temperamental as a person. He was such a perfectionist that if he didn't do well in batting practice, when everybody was watching the master in action, he got so angry that if he, he walked out of the batting cage, if anybody was in his path, he'd shove them away. He'd curse at them, get out, beat it, get out of here. And and he was, so 
I, I made sure if he didn't do well in batting practice, no matter how friendly I was with him before the game, that I would avoid him completely till he cooled off. And when he cooled off, he was his very genial self once again. <laughs> great story, great story. That's so so um, he then all of a sudden Ted got in another fight with the, with the folks up in Boston. He made a poor play in the field. He was booed criticized, and when he crossed home plate, he thumbed his nose at the press box, spit on the home plate, was fined $5,000, and said he would never do another interview in his life to anybody, but he, he had promised me he'd be on when I got to Washington. So I put him on, but the first thing I said, Ted, you told me you'd never go on again, but can you go on with me? You promised. He said, Absolutely. <clears throat> so he went on, and after that, he, uh, at the end of the interview, he said, Bob, I told people I'd never do another interview, but you've always been so fair to me, I figured you're an exception, so you have me any time you want. So I figured that was quite a, quite a compliment. Great story. Great, great yeah, story. Great. Well, he had a, an almost encyclopedic memory of it seemed like every at bat, didn't he, Bob? I mean, you asked him about a, an at bat from 30, 40 years ago. Uh, you, know, you struck out here, and he said, "Yeah, a fastball low and away, or I hit this curveball for a home run." He, he was a real student of the game, uh, obviously, but of hitting in particular, he really knew every nuance of hitting, didn't he? Yeah, you know, he he did a lot of things really different. For example, I asked him one time. I said, "Ted." Why do you keep flexing your fingers all the time off the bat? You can see him just, he said, well, I, I keep gripping the bat all the time with my fingers to make sure they're not going to stick because of all the, the, the junk I put on there to the stick them on the bat. So I said, I got to make sure that, yeah. So then I said, Ted, why is it that you, you pass up all these first pitches? So those, I said, the pitcher, is always trying to get a strike on you right away with it with a strike on the inside corner or the outside corner. <clears throat> you can lay for that pitch, you know it's going to be over. Why, why don't you swing at it? He said, "Well, I do it mainly for the pitchers I haven't seen. I want to get at least one good look at what what they do, how much their speed is, their velocity." He said, "I'd, I'd hate to come up and have a guy get me out of some dinky curve or." the pitch that wasn't as fast as I anticipated. And I'm like, you know, if I had waited to take a better look at him, I could have hit the pitch. So he said, I wait for the pitch that I want. I don't I don't care what he does in the first pitch. I'm waiting for the one that I want to hit, and that's the way I hit. Mm. Oh. So he, he hit his own system. I don't yes. believe in that system, but I'm not Ted Williams. Well, I, I agree, because if you look at Willie Mays, he was just the opposite. Willie Mays, he, he lived on that first pitch. He loved that yeah. first pitch. So it, it's a whole different idea. of, uh, And, of course, Willie said, you see the ball, you hit the ball. What did they throw you? Well, <laughs> I hit it. Mm. That's, he, he, never, he never gave you any great explanations about what kind of pitch it was. You know, speaking of, of, of a hitting, I just bring back to mind that when I did the Ty Cobb interview, Ty Cobb used to bat every year up in the like the 380s, a great hitter and a great base dealer. But the oddity was that when Babe Ruth got going, 
Babe Ruth got all the headlines, and people didn't bother to, to, to write about Ty Cobb anymore, which sort of irked him quite a bit. So one day he, he called the press together and he said, he said, guys, he said, you know, I don't uppercut the ball for home runs like Babe Ruth does because he said, I, I'm more intent on leading the league in batting. But he said, I tell you the truth, I can hit home runs if I want. They're going to cut down my batting average. But he said, I'm going to prove it to you. So come out in the next two days and I'll show you what I mean. And the next day, Cobb went in the ball game. He got up and had six hits, three of which were home runs. The day after, he had two home runs. So he said, I just want to prove it to you. It can be done. I thought that was amazing. <laughs> well, that's but interesting. The, the strange because... thing is that Ty Cobb then led the league in home runs with nine. And believe it or not, None of them went over a fence. Wow. <laughs> well, it's interesting uh, that you say that because when I did the interview with Joe, and this has been a number of years ago, obviously, and I uh, don't know that I remembered exactly the way he stated, but he said we made the comparison between the uppercut swing uh, of Ted Williams and his swing, and he, uh, he said, I, I, I was like Honus Wagner. I hit down on the ball. I didn't hit up on the ball. He said, right. I was concerned about hitting line drives. I wasn't concerned about hitting home runs. You know, you mentioned Joe DiMaggio. He, uh, remember the conversation I had with him when I asked him, do you think the ball players today are as good as, as they were in the days gone by? He said, he said, Bob, today the ball players, a lot of them, come right up after one or two seasons somewhere and they're right in the big leagues. He said, when I was playing, there were about some of these ball clubs had 10 minor league teams playing, and you had to work your way up to the top by being the very best. So he said, there are some players who have great potential, but they haven't had the potential even fulfilled because they're up to the major leagues before they, they've really learned all the arts of the game. Right, right. And he, well, he's true about that. Well, I'll tell you, I can remember when Charlie Keller was playing for the <laughs> Newark when the, it was the Yankee farm team, and he was hitting like 367, and they didn't bring him up. <laughs> they had Tommy Hendrick in right field, and they, hmm. they didn't bring Charlie Keller up. Well, <laughs> you know, if you, if you get if you're drafted these days and get with the wrong ball club, you may never get up. When the Yankees were at their, at their peak, you, you, couldn't get, you couldn't break in. Right. You better be drafted by somebody else. I'll tell you one thing. The Mets won't have any trouble bringing anybody up. What a weekend they had and what a couple <laughs> oh, of Oh, man. What a disastrous day for them. I heard the general manager on today with Francesa, and, uh, I mean, he uh, you really had to feel sorry for him because, I mean, they just have a, no, no talent <laughs> at all, upstairs or downstairs. Yeah, it's amazing how few great baseball people – are good at evaluating talent. And that is such, is such an art. But uh, if you get to bring the wrong guys up and count on them and they don't come through, that that makes or breaks the season right there. No I mean, the great baseball scouts are tough to find. Bob, well, Doug, I'll let, you, I'll let you wind it up with Bob. I got my, all my two cents in. Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, Bob, did you ever do a 20-inning game uh, with the Senators? That's what happened with the Mets. <laughs> I can't remember the longest game that, that I've done, n n nor either 
on the game of the week or just with any any one ball club. But, uh, you know, people complain sometimes that baseball is just too long. But I, think, I said, baseball is like a book. A short game can be very dull. But a game that goes 20 innings, 15 innings, can be the most exciting game of all with all the great plays and so forth. It's just like a book. If it's a long book, but it's fun reading, it's fun reading, and you stay with it. So the length never made any difference to me, that's for sure. Well, Bob, once again, I want to say thank you so very, very much, and congratulations on being smart enough to maintain all those tapes. And a lot of people are going to get a lot of pleasure out of listening to uh, those those interviews. So uh, thank you so very, very much. Doug, how about that? Well, it's a pleasure pleasure being with you guys. You ask good questions, and I, you're good company. So anytime I can help, just pick up the phone, call me. I'll be with you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Bob. Stan Brock. 30 years ago, I formed Remote Area Medical to help people overseas. But then we found generations of families in America isolated by poverty from the health care they need. Together, we can take dental, vision, and medical help to a million adults and their kids right here at home in the United States of America.